Hey everybody, this is Frank Rains Jr. from History Through the Eyes of Faith. Just wanted to give you a heads up to check the link in our bio for Kofi. It's a way that you can go and support the podcast if you like what you're hearing, and also a way to find some merchandise and some extra content. So check out the link in our bio, head over to Kofi. It's a great way to support the podcast. Did I miss anything, Ange? Oh, add in. You can also comment there, ask questions, and join us in a chat room. Oh, wow. And there's so that you can chat with us. Anyway, check out Kofi. The link is in our bio. I'm passionate about teaching this material because I think that we have to understand history to understand what's happening today. Pork tenderloins, only $3.29. And how did that become the way I experience church now? Hey, listen, you know, you've got the creation, we've got um, Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got all these things that have happened. We're now part of that story. Because to me, the <laughs> This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Ranks Jr., along with producer Wes. We're glad you're here. Hey, everybody, this is Frank. It's History Through the Eyes of Faith episode two. It's History Through the Eyes of Faith. We have a. <laughs> Our uh, theme song is now going to be sung by Aaron Neville. And we have Angie Ferris is here, as always. Angie, welcome. Thank you, Frank. So good to be here today. And we have Wes, producer. Producer Wes is here. Wes, the producer, is here. Say hello, Wes. Hey, maybe we got that on there. Yeah. Um, hey, everybody. Um, we're glad everybody's here. Episode 72. And it comes right after 71. We're glad you're jumping in. Any, but it's been a while since we recorded. It has. We've been yeah. spreading them out. Been a minute. We'll do a, an episode. Then we'll wait like 10 days. <laughs> do another episode. And so it gives us opportunity to catch up. Things that have happened in between. Uh, we, in 71, we talked about current events that were very connected to history. The passing of Her Grace, mm. Queen Elizabeth II. Um, right? was the second, right? Yes. Um, and now King Charles, protector of the realm. Charles III, I believe. And, um, I don't know, I just like doing that voice. And... What else is going on? We want to talk about, oh, we're going to get into some cool things in 72. We're going to talk about a book. Yes. And to set up the book. But I, I have something to share that is a new thing. Okay. And I'm, I'm saying this, which makes it official. That's right. You're putting it out there. I have been entertaining and preparing to become a... A friend of mine, uh, an acquaintance. You're going to become a friend of mine? No, I, I messed up that setup. I'll back up. A friend of mine, I am going to become a friend of yours, though. <laughs> okay. A friend of mine that an acquaintance I made um, 24 years ago, over 24 years ago. That's a strong acquaintance if it's still an acquaintance after 24 well, years. We were an acquaintance. It was a show that I was doing in early 98 where how I met him. I was in a show and his wife was in the show. Matter of fact, it's right over there on the shelf on video. And um, Which show was that? It was a play called Under Milkwood. Oh. Did you see that? I don't think I did. It's an interest. Well, Dylan Thomas wrote the play. It's, it's a cool thing if you don't know who Dylan Thomas is. And then he wrote this. It's a radio play. That, you know, so characters played it on the radio. Yeah, cool. And then they've made it into, it's been a movie several times. It's about a town from oh. morning to night. Okay. And I played multiple characters in it. And Anyway, so you have this anyway, acquaintance anyway, from Acquaintance to the play. Moved away for several years. 17 plus years moved away. He moved back last year. And he asked me if, if I knew anyone that would be interested in helping him. Uh, he owns a food tasting tour of Nashville. It's called the Tastes of Nashville. Oh, wow. And I have gone on that tour twice. 
and I'm going to be a tour guide. How exciting. For the Taste of Nashville tour. And right now it's looking like I'm only available to do this on the weekends. And um, right now there's two tours with potential third being a happy hour tour. But the first two are ones in Germantown and ones in the Gulch. And they're every day of the week. They take about three hours. And you learn history of the area and of the restaurant and of the food and how it's connected to Nashville. So when are you going to, and you get to taste? Well, as, your, as the tour guide, you're more of a host slash, you're a host. You're not like, you but know. But the people on the tour, are they tasting? Yeah, yeah. They're eating the food. So you buy a ticket that includes the tastings of about four different oh, places. Cool. And then I want to do that. And you get educated on, um, on history of things. And, um, yeah, so I've taken his tour twice and, uh, as if, and it felt like I'm a visitor because a lot of stuff I didn't know. So maybe you could work out a deal with him. If we promote his tours on the podcast, you can hand out podcast cards on the tour. Maybe we can. Cause I these are going to be people who are interested in history and they food. Are. They are. And food. So yeah, I'm, um, that's pretty cool. So I'm going to, I'm actually going to go Saturday and actually going to be be part of the host of the of the tour. Like I I I'm going to be responsible on the Saturday as kind of a a protege guide, meaning a trainee. He's going to lead it, and then when we get to the restaurant, it's going to be my job to talk about the restaurant and the food and the connection cool. and the story. So I've got four places that I'm doing that for. I can't wait. You can't wait. I want to go. Well, it sounds fun. It, it'll be. I don't have any plans this Saturday. I'm going to buy a ticket. Buy a ticket. Yeah. So that's that's a new that's a new update for me. Cool. I don't know um, how. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm doing it because I think it will be fun. All of our listeners now, you know, are going to be calling in, going, "Wait, I want Frank. When is Frank doing his tour? I want to buy. Oh, all, I want to yeah. get on Frank's Both tour. Both of them are going to ask. Don't that. you say that? We have several. <laughs> From um, 20 countries outside <clears throat> of the United States. Well, come on to Nashville, and it's the Taste of Nashville. Google it. You'll see the site, and you can go out there and sign up, and um, and I will maybe be a tour guide if it's on the weekend. And it's just one. It takes about three hours. usually starts around 1.30, and you finish up around 4.30 or 5.00. So it beats that. So is there one on Saturday and one on Sunday? Is that the thing? Yeah, I think there's one every day or two, depending on which one you want to do. Oh, there's two different tours. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's when you said two a day. It's like one in each location or whatever. Yes. Mm What did you say? Germantown and, oh, what was that? And the Gulch. And the Gulch, of course. Mm -hmm. The Gulch tour actually starts at Union Station. Yeah, for sure. As historical discussion. Yeah, because that's where the Gulch started. And then you walk... Over the bridge, down into the gulch, and hit restaurants down in there that have that have connections. So it's a walking tour. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool! And so, like, how are you projected with just my voice? Okay, cool. How many people on the tour? Ideally, eight to twelve. Oh, how fun! Yeah. Okay. So it's a it's a new thing that. We'll see how it goes. I've been a tour guide before in Nashville, and I, I, it didn't go great. Like, but that was because of like the... I did a good... I felt like I did as best... I'm not going to say I did a good job. I did what I thought was the best I could do, and it seemed that people had a good time. I was not having a good time. You weren't relaxed enough. It was The situation Mm-mm. was making you too uptight. Well, it was the tour was the Redneck Comedy Bus Tour, and I was a redneck. And I, and I could play the part... But not all the time. It was it was more like a stand up act. It was more like uh, you got to be you got to be ready to work the crowd a lot, and I can do it a little. So when you get in the traffic situations, you're all on a bus. You get in a traffic situation. You got to be entertaining when there's nothing yeah, to be entertained. I about. think it's that you think you can't do it because I know you from <clears> hanging <throat> out with you for hours at a time. You can be pretty entertaining constantly. Well, if I'm myself, though. That's, oh, you couldn't keep in the redneck character? I had to be the other guy. And what I want to do in that character was probably a lot of offensive things. 
if I could just say whatever you want, <laughs> then maybe. But but you got to be just too much to think about. You got to think about not mm. being offensive and being a redneck. And yeah. And and, and so, but this the food tour is going to be kind of fun because I will get to be me the whole time. Yeah. And I don't have to talk the whole time. I'm just taking you to places. But, you know, you make money off tips. So you want to be engaging and you want to make friends and you want to talk. And, you know, so it'll be um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Sounds fun. Well. <laughs> and right <laughs> in the middle of football season, too. It's got me a little upset about it. Oh, man. Well, there's something. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's some good football happening out there. Yep. But it's early in the season. Everybody's still prancing around. Everybody's still all up in the... Oh, yeah, oh, I don't yeah. know. I'm a little upset with my team this year. Really? Yeah, yeah. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. The defense just ain't doing mm. it. It does look risky. Yeah. does look risky. So... Ooh, <laughs> I'm wake up, because Frank. We're, um, Get some. We're recording at an unusually late hour. We are for us. Well, yeah, but in a way, yeah. yeah. We're just seeing how it goes, but maybe some more coffee is in order. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm good. It just happened to be. I mean, I'm not okay. I'm not dazed. So where were you going? I was just trying to segue in. You, right. you might want to share an anecdote or. I wasted 10 of our minutes. I mean, I didn't waste it. <laughs> no, but. you told us an interesting story. I don't really have any anecdotes in particular. I do wish you had been with me at the Zaxby's down in Cleveland, Tennessee last Friday. Zaxby's. Because we could have a definite show come out of my experience. <laughs> definite show. <laughs> it was something. It was something. That was having a, a, an unusual day. There were some things going on at the Zaxby's. Yes, it was something and i was there with our parents oh yeah and uh that's not, not that our parents are bad our parents are just no very they're, much they're senior citizens they're senior citizens so you got to be careful yeah. about the getting in the getting out ordering the food the whole mm. thing and anyway it was wow it was a something they had the biggest issue was and i'll get started on the podcast they had the drive through window call in and pick stuff up and the people walking up to the counter so if somebody decides to call in and order literally 40 to 60 sandwiches, it's going to kind of mess up the production of everything else. Of the people in the restaurant. Yes. And the drive-thru seemed to have its own thing going. So I did think maybe I should now just get in the car, drive around and say, I already ordered and paid. Can you just give me that? Yeah. Y'all seem to have the food supply over here. <laughs> I came over here. So everybody was nice. Nobody was rude. But the personalities being displayed and the way they were reacting under pressure and all the sandwiches just kept Mm-mm. coming out and coming out. Mm-mm. It was entertaining. I was ready for you to do a show. No, sir. Anyway, now for that. Zaxby's. <laughs> Which my husband loves Zaxby's. I'm not as nuts. Is but there one near you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very close. Most of my family really likes it. <laughs> it's a good alternative. Yeah. Yeah, that should be their slogan. Uh, We're a good alternative when your favorite place is not open or the line is too long. Come to Zaxby's. It's good enough. (laughs) Really? No, I do like Zaxby's. I just don't. There's not one convenient to me. Yeah. So I don't ever think of going there. Yeah. But when I am in an area where there is one, it's usually what I will choose over something else. I don't dislike it. I just don't really care for it but i can tolerate it if it's what's working for everybody else and that's what was happening that day mm-hmm. and my husband called and he was on the speakerphone in the car you know like so the whole car can hear him mm-hmm. and i'm like well we're driving to zaxby's and i was terrified that he was gonna say can't believe you're going there because we'd finally come to an agreement and i just wasn't sharing you, didn't, you did not want the, the the pushback of you said that it's and, okay yeah yeah, with yeah, you. yeah yeah i didn't want I gotcha that. all right so let's learn about the book that we're talk, going to be talking okay, about. Okay, and so before we dive into the book, well, I left us a couple of things. What did we cover in the last episode that was important information before we went into the book? That archaeology is a fairly new science. Yes, that and? And the meaning of what we say faith. When we say, what, what do we mean when we say history through the eyes of faith? We talk about 
the eyes of a person who believes in Christianity as their belief systems. I'm not saying that right, but that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, Christian, that that it is the eyes from a, a follower of Christ, a Christ follower, which yeah. when you dive into what that, the, the reason we were bringing that up then is as we get into this material, we want to be clear that we're not calling out anybody, that we are all capable of uh, and lean toward bad decisions. By nature, we we We're, we we lean toward sinful decisions, and that our relationship with God is based on not what we do, but what Christ has done. Right. Okay. So therefore, we're not like throwing flags at what other people are doing, like the referees. Right. So that's part of the deal. Then at the very end, I said that there were some things that. Do you remember what I said? I'd been thinking about, and it's been such a long time ago. Okay. So at the. I mentioned that that as we've been studying this period of the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, that there were still some questions for me, some things that weren't fitting together, and that this book starts addressing those. Okay. And so that was like the teaser going in. So I wanted, okay. So here's some of the things that I think about. It's like I still don't feel like I have had a really good explanation of why the Dark Ages happened. Okay? Because... You feel that way. Yeah, because... Like you can say, well, it was because of the barbarians, but it doesn't appear to me in looking back and going through the stories and looking that everything went south. It's like, yes, there was no longer an official Roman Empire, but there seemed to be people who still wanted to live like Romans that mm -hmm. just happened to be Germanic yeah. and that the, the church went in with them and helped them rewrite their law. There was this we've talked about this desire to be Roman. Um, not this, everything's fallen apart, you know, it, it, does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, like that, so. there doesn't seem to be pillaging. There seemed to be coming in and taking over, but not necessarily ruining everything that was there. So okay. why did it, what brought on this darkness? You know, that was kind of the question. And then. Yeah, because I also had some quotes and some things I was reading that were talking about how the Germans or the Germanic tribes, the barbarian tribes coming in wanted to be Roman. And we also mentioned, remember, how many of those tribes had already been hired by the Romans to come in and protect their borders and were getting permission to be from their, you know. So it was like they were inviting them in as help and the Romans are getting they're not bringing in enough income to support armies for all realms. And so it's kind of shrinking and the armies are moving out of areas and as they move out, but I still don't understand why that brings about a dark age, you know, because the, maybe because these settlements, these countries, these places of civilization became, had to become more self-reliant and independent. Well, but it seems that, and we're going to come into that when we get into the book, there's still a lot of training going on. Still a lot of knowledge of other parts of the world. Okay, so we'll come back. Are you back. about to make the point that there was no Dark Ages? There was uh, no Middle no, Ages? No, I don't think I'm going to make that point. Okay. But, so there's that. Then another, another thing is I've been debating about when to teach on feudalism and where to fit that. And feudalism, just for a short definition right here, we've mentioned it before. We haven't gone into detail, which we will be doing, not on this episode, but on future is also known as the feudal system, which was the combination of the legal, economic, military, and cultural customs that flourished in medieval Europe between, now this is a Wikipedia definition, between the 9th and the 15th centuries. But you could look that up somewhere else, and sometimes it'll say between the 5th and the 15th centuries. Remember how we talk about the Middle Ages being like 500 to 1500? Mm -hmm. And yet, in the stuff we've studied to this point, I haven't seen feudalism i haven't seen this you know uh this real tight medieval system of legal economic military cultural customs we started talking about it a little bit with charlemagne and saying it was a precursor but also way back when i was teaching on the reasons that the western roman empire was falling we said that the people from the city could no longer be protected to the city so they were moving to the country and that that was the beginning of the feudal system but yet when Charlemagne instituted these counts and these lords, it's almost kind of like that's a new idea. And that's at 800. And right. so I really can't figure out where this all fell. Okay. And then here's another thing. 
Why did they start building castles? Castles seems like fortresses, right? Yeah. And if you look at when castles were built, a lot of times it says they were built in the 11th century, the 10th and 11th century, which we're not even to yet. Right. And I'm like, okay, so all of that. See, those are questions I'm asking myself when I'm trying to figure out what to teach at what point and how to tell the story. And so there's things I've been like thinking like, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. Why did that happen? And what those are, I'm asking those questions at any point during this preparation of content and then finding answers to those questions. But those answers have seemed strange to me. Okay. They mm -hmm. have, they haven't exactly seemed to fit. So what happened a few weeks ago was a friend was at my house for another purpose, saw what I was reading, reached out to me later that day after he got back home and said, have you seen this book? Have you read this book? Cause we talked some about what I was reading and he loves history. He knows about the podcast. And, um, I said, no. And he said, well, he sent me the link. It said, well, you know, something like you should check it out or I think you'd like it. I really like, this is really good on archaeology, history, slavery, all this stuff. So I read a little bit about it on, um, online before I ordered it, knowing that it was, had the potential to be controversial. Controversial. Contro it has some controversial. Controversy. That's what it is. Controversial. It has some controversy you add in it. H in there. Controversial. <laughs> anyway, the name of the book is Mohammed and Charlemagne <laughs> Revisited. And the reason it's called Mohammed and Charlemagne Revisited is because Mohammed and Charlemagne is a book that was published back. I think I we talked about this. We did a little bit. It came up episode before last. It was published back when we were talking about the Viking slave trade. Because I was starting to read it then and said, I'll be coming back with it. Muhammad and Charlemagne was a book that was written by a Perrin was his last name, maybe back in the mid 20th century, maybe the early 20th century. I think I made a comment about this being kind of like uh, artistic license where you make a movie about Charlemagne and Muhammad getting together and having like. Yeah, I don't know. Did meetings. you? I think I did. Anyway, so. This guy then, Mr. Emmett Scott, and this bush, book was published in 2012, took Perrin's work from back in the middle of the 20th century and added to it and brought that th the theory that Perrin brought to the study of history, particularly the history of the Middle Ages, and puts more meat to it because more research has been done. And as we just talked about in our last episode, a lot more archaeology because archaeology was hardly around in the middle of the 20th century, was just getting started and spelled out this book. And so it becomes um, for the listener. She's been holding the book. So it's a lot more dramatic in person. <laughs> Y'all write I'm in if you'd like to I'm have live. about the book. If you'd like to have some live stream, some cameras on us while She's all this She's gesturing with it. It looks like a good, I want to hold it now. <laughs> anyway, it's a paperback book, right? But I don't know if you can tell from there, Frank, but I have marked this book up. This book is marked up. Like I would go through and start highlighting and then I noticed I just marked all of the last four pages. Okay. So you can't memorize the whole book. No. And so in preparing for this, it's been a little bit challenging to try to. So I'm going to start with the end because at the very end, he says, in conclusion, and he summarizes his points. Then I'm going to go back and fill out, fill You're in gonna some Tarantino of that. You're going to Tarantino it. You're going to Tarantino it. We're going to start with the end then go back. Okay. So, so he's made all these other statements. And then he says, we may nonetheless conclude by stating that archaeological investigation over the past half century has revealed the following. Okay? All right. So archaeological investigation over the past half century. So if a half century is 50 years, this was published in 12. So let's say it was 2010 when it was written. You're talking about from 1960 to 2010. That would be the past half century, which, as we realize, is when archaeology is taken off. Okay. Right? So... That says to me, like, hmm, this is worth investigating because we have new tools that we didn't have when we reached the conclusions about the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages that we have reached. You know, and I've kind of started polling people like, 
what do you think the dark ages were and how do you think they happened or what do you remember being taught about that and that kind of stuff so here's what he says classical civilization now what's classical civil civilization that would be like roman okay thank you you know greek and roman civilization the civilization of the classics the roman empire classical civilization showed a marked marked or marked however you say that decline from the beginning of the third century onward third century would be 200 and we talked about that some when we were coming through about the the growth of the empire becoming too big and how do you manage it and and emperors came along who divided it in half so they'd help manage it better all that going on from then the beginning of the third century through the first half of the fifth century which would be the 400s, right? Mm -hmm. There is evidence of a fairly dramatic drop in the population of the Roman Empire, particularly in its western provinces. Okay, now in the book, I'm just doing this from memory, but in the book he explains that by some ideas that get thrown out as to why that would be the case is that people were, abortion was plentiful, people were not interested in having families, people were more interested in um, living a decadent lifestyle, you know, I mean, it was that kind of thing throughout the Roman Empire. There were plagues, there were famines, there were those kind of things, but the population was falling from, we know, up until the middle of the 5th century, okay? By the late 5th century, this decline was halted and even reversed. Okay. And one of the reasons he gives for that is the influence of Christianity. Because we know that it is in the late 4th century that Christianity becomes the official religion. Well, Christianity honors children and marriage, and, and those are values in the Christian and the Jewish community that are now becoming the majority as more people become Christians. Right. And so they're more likely to do that. That's one of the things he gives. Also, it's, it seems to say that they must have plenty of food. They must be, you know, people aren't starving to death. Medical conditions must be, you know, things must be on the upswing if the population is growing. And you can tell that through archaeology, right? That the population is growing. So there's evidence of a fairly dramatic drop in the population up until the first half of the 5th. By the late 5th century, this decline was halted and even reversed. Archaeology shows the greatest revival of trade, expansion of population, and recommencement of high-quality architecture in North Africa and Spain, two regions which now experience something of a golden age. So he's saying the golden age in North Africa and Spain is the second half of the fifth century now this would have been when it wasn't part of the roman empire when it was the visigoths the vandals like you're taking me down a path that something's not right why the golden age they're saying the golden age and we're saying it's a dark ages so (laughs) yeah yeah, well, you remember when we started talking about Middle Ages, that Dark Ages is not a popular term anymore, and that there's a lot of discussion about when the Middle Ages start and when the Middle Ages end, okay? okay yeah. But the reason they got named Middle was because of the Modern Age and the Classical Age. And so when the Modern Age comes about, when we have the Renaissance and the Reformation and all these things, they're like, okay, now we're going back to the real truth that was back there, and all this other stuff was just in the middle, Right. Okay. So, yeah, we're not real sure what date. So, in, for a little bit, you're right. So now it, he's he's pushing it up through the fifth century that things were growing. Like, yes, it was no longer the Roman Empire, but the people who had come in had created and continued this Roman culture, this classical culture, and there was trade and there was population growth and all of that going on. Okay. But by the mid sixth century. Now we're talking 700s, right? Have I got that right? No, that's the 8th century. The mid-6th century would be... 500s. 500s. Latin civilization was also expanded in Gaul, Central Europe, and even Britain. Indeed, it now began to spread into regions never reached by the Roman legions, such as Eastern Germany, Ireland, and Northern Britain. Only Italy, particularly Central Italy, showed signs of decay, but this was not primarily the result of barbarian invasions of the 
of the 5th century and is adequately explained by the decline of Rome's political importance. So the only place that's showing signs of decay is central Italy, which is where Rome was, which would make sense because Rome's political importance is going away. Right. But so civilization is doing, excuse me, great in all these places up through, what did we say? Mid 6th century. It's expanding up to all those places. Okay. So that's a little bit different than saying that when the barbarians came in, everything fell apart. Right. Because archaeology seems to say, no, and, and, they, and you can read the book to see all the reasons why. It has to do with what kind of pottery and the things they're finding in England that came from, I'm making up places because I'm not reading into the book, from India or from China, that it's obvious there's trading going on, mm-hmm. the same amount of trade, the same long distance trading that was happening during the Roman Empire. The trade routes have not been shut down. There is opulent Things that cost money, like mosaics or silks or whatever, being found. There's, you know, so they can discern there was a thriving civilization in all of these places that dates up through the sixth century. So that's his first point. Okay. Next point the same pattern is observed in the East, where numerous cities were very large pop- with very large populations were sustained by a thriving economy and agriculture. That the great plague of 542, which swept through the Mediterranean world, which was over in the eastern um, portion, did not inflict terminal damage, is proved beyond question by the discovery of thriving and prosperous cities of the late 6th and early 7th centuries throughout the Levantine region. Now, I looked up what's Levantine, and Levantine is between, it's the number, right? It's like 9, 10, 11, 12, (laughs) 11, 10. (laughs) <laughs> that's cute 13. i love it because that's the way our granddaughter talks sometimes because you know it's hard to get 11 in there 11 and 12 don't make sense because then 11, you go 13 14 yeah well it's 11 12 11 teen. okay so the word is spelled levantine l-e-v-a-n-t-i-n-e and it's the re- the eastern coast oh of, it's the soda it's the eastern coast of the mediterranean so it's like the holy land lebanon Syria, mm-hmm. okay. Tall glass of Levantine. Okay. I'm going to read that sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there was a great plague of 542, which swept through the, wet, the Mediterranean world. A lot of people want to attribute decline after that, right? But. They're wrong. It did not inflict terminal damage, which is proved beyond question, in his opinion, by the discovery of thriving and prosperous cities of the late 6th and early 7th centuries throughout the Levantine region. Indeed, by the second half of the 6th century, these regions now began to experience an epoch of unparalleled prosperity and opulence. Cities expanded and trade increased well into the second decade of the 7th century. Okay, so something about to happen in the second, seventh century? Are you about to tell us that everything was great? I don't know where. By the third or perhaps the fourth decade of the seventh century, classical civilization began rapidly to disappear. Somebody They're getting rowdy over that. there in that studio next door. They're getting, They're getting excited. excited. Um, the cities of the East were either destroyed or abandoned or both. Okay, do you remember what happened when we were talking about history in the middle of the 7th century? What years would that be? The 3rd or 4th decade of the 7th century would be like 630 or 640. 732. What happened in 732? I I don't know what happened in 732. I don't don't know. We've seen some maps that says 732 on it. I know. It was the uh, birth of Islam and the beginning of islamic expansion oh that's what it is 622 was the was the i think 622 is the year that muhammad went to mecca and it becomes become okay, but not that, mecca but that's but, not the answer to your question what you said what happened in this? yes that's what happened okay and if you go back and look at those maps that's it's in that second half of the seventh century that all the conquering start so what this author says I'm going to read the whole thing again. By the third or perhaps the fourth decade of the seventh century, classical civilization began rapidly to disappear. The cities of the east were either destroyed or abandoned or both. Now, the east would be, look at that Mediterranean, and it's to the east. Mm -hmm. Okay? 
This destruction was without question the work of first the Persians and then the Arabs. Yes. Okay. So mm. when we talked about the Arab expansion, we didn't talk about destruction. We just said they came and took over. Right. All right. And so it would be this Arthur's author's argument. That's hard to say. Author's yeah, argument. Yeah. That this is not been discussed enough that the nature of this expansion is politically incorrect to talk about okay so people stay away from it people don't look into the nature of the expansion you know the barbarians coming in are getting marked as the fall but yet we have this archaeological evidence that everything was still thriving up to the seventh century and into the early part. So, he said, hmm. if these, he says, with the dip- disappearance of the cities came the decline of the classical system of agriculture. Because the agriculture in the country or around the cities had to provide food for people in the cities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about that in America a lot. It's like people on the coast think life's on the coast and people in middle, middle America are like, you couldn't live if we weren't feeding you. Right? So the, that balance thing. So he says, with the disappearance of the cities came the decline of the classical system of agriculture. Enormous areas of previously cultivated and fertile land quickly became barren and overgrown. Mm-mm. A phenomenon almost certainly explained by the Arab custom of allowing their herds to graze on cultivated fields which behavior was prompted by the Islamic doctrine that the faithful had a right to live off the labor of the infidel. And we'll come back to that, okay? We'll come back to that assertion. But that's his conclusion. Some strong claims. It is. In Mediterranean Europe at the same time, the classical system of agriculture also disappears. Furthermore, the scattered lowland... Now, Mediterranean Europe, we've got that Mediterranean map we've been looking at over and over again. So that's... All of that to the north is Mediterranean Europe, right? Northern Europe would be on up where France and Gaul and the Norse and Britain and all that is. But that Mediterranean Europe is that coast of Spain and the yeah. southern coast of France and all that. So, um, let's see. In Mediterranean Europe, at the same time, the classical system of agriculture also disappears. Furthermore, the scattered lowland settlements of classical times are abandoned and replaced by defended hilltop settlements. They're moving from the lowland up to the hills. And what are they building on the hills? Mosques. Castles. Castles. Because they need to defend themselves. Now, do you remember last time we were talking about the slave trade, trading and all that? And you made, we discussed who, when we're looking at the maps, we discussed who had control of the coast. Yeah. And who did? The Muslims. Yes. The Islam. And we made that, you made the comment because we were talking about capturing people, kidnapping people, selling them into slavery, that it wouldn't be safe to live on the coast if that was happening. Right. And he's saying here, archaeological evidence is that the classical system of agriculture disappears and the scattered lowland settlements of classical times are abandoned and replaced by defended hilltop settlements. And then his, his sentence is, if these developments were not caused by Arab piracy and slave raiding, then no explanation for them is forthcoming. Like, there's not another explanation of why these things happened. I see. Okay. So, I'm going to read some now to, that goes into a little bit about why he sees... I'm just picking a few places from the book, okay? And... and Things that I think explain a few things or explain his argument about the things. Let me just say this. You go research it for yourself. I'm not saying that I'm convinced that this is the way things went down. I do seem to think, I think there is a lot. I find it very interesting Mm -hmm. that there's archaeological evidence of this. And it does answer some of the questions for me that I've had. Or it seems like a plausible answer to me. Okay, that's the way to put it. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So 
empires had come and gone before in the Mediterranean, before the onslaught of Islam, before the Islamic empire came and took over, empires had come and gone. Wars of conquest had been waged. Barbarian peoples had occupied territories from Asia Minor to Spain. They had come and take over. We talked about that. Yet none of them had destroyed trade and agriculture in the way these things were destroyed in the 7th century. What was it about the Muslim empire which produced such disruption? Let's hear it. His question. It has to be understood that with the coming of Islam, there appeared on the world stage an ideology like none that had existed before. One of the fundamentals of Islamic faith was the acceptability, even the duty, of Muslims to wage war against the infidel. Muhammad himself preached the necessity of war and participated in violent conflict. Indeed, he is said to have ordered at least 60 raids and wars and personally participated in 27 of them. I know that those last two sentences would be argued about by different people. Okay. That's what he just, did he write that? No, I'm saying that, that the fact that Muhammad himself preached the necessity of war is people argue about whether that's the case or not. Okay. Okay. Um, He gives quotes from the Quran and talks about that. And so, like I say, go research it yourself. I also, I mean, and I know from Christianity that you can go take quotes from Jesus and pull them out and say that they mean this, that, and the other, but the proper way to interpret them is within the whole context of scripture. Right. So I can't begin to interpret Muhammad's sayings accurately and so you have to I have to trust other people who know it better okay mm-hmm. and and I don't know whether he's one of those people you know what I'm saying I, I I can I can go with this or not I'm not I'm just telling you this is this is his explanation for why the destruction came about when the Muslims invaded in a way that it didn't come out come about when previous empires because had of done the nature it. of their faith the nature of the and belief the, and, and the, the belief that Muhammad was war was a necessity. He says the Islamic faith was a fundamental of the Islam was the acceptability, even the duty of Muslims to wage war against the infidel. And mm-hmm. he's saying that Muhammad taught that. So Gibbon is a historian and I think he's mid 20th century historian, but he's famous for his history of the middle ages. And, and, this author, Mr. Scott, refers to him, is, it, is that right? Yeah, refers to him as, um, an unbi- as unbiased an authority as may be found. He attributed the spectacular success of Muhammad's faith to the promise of plunder. Quote, this is for a quote from Gibbon. From all sides, the roving Arabs were allured to the standard of religion and plunder. And the apostles sanctified the license of embracing female captives of their wife, as their wives and concubines. And the enjoyment of wealth and beauty was a feeble type of the joys of paradise prepared for the valiant martyrs of the faith. So he's saying that from all sides, the standard of re- religion was plunder and that it was fine to take women and make wives and add them to their harems. And um, it was just a temporal enjoyment of the wealth that waited for them. Uh, the, swore, the sword, says Muhammad, is the key of heaven and of hell. A, and a drop of blood shed in the cause of God, a night spent in, in arms, is of more avail than two months of fasting or prayer. Whosoever falls in battle, his sins are forgiven. That's Gibbon quoting Muhammad in the, uh, I think it's called the Decline and Fall of Western Civilization is the name of his, or of the Roman Empire. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire is his famous book. Well, whose famous book? Gibbon. Okay. The guy he's quoting there, and he's the one who said that Muhammad said that, okay? Okay. Um, so now back to this author. And it cannot be stressed too strongly that all of, early, all of the early spread of Islam involved the sword. Contrast this with the growth of Christianity or Buddhism, for that matter. In fact, Islam is virtually unique among world religions in that its primary scriptures advocate the use of military force and its early expansion— Indeed, its expansion during the first six or seven centuries of its existence invariably involved military conquest and the use of force. Right. Okay. Let me just say it again. He's using this as an explanation of the archaeological evidence that those civilizations... Are we getting to the archaeological evidence? Or are you just saying that it No, exists? I'm saying you can go read the book. There's chapters of things. It's those same kind of things that we were talking about 
if you know what was happening by what was there and then it disappears, you know it's not happening anymore. Right. Okay. Um, that's the inference. Okay. And archaeology is a young science. Hadith and Islamic theology divides the world into two parts, the Dar al-Islam, House of Islam, and the Dar al-Harb, the House of War. In short, a state of perpetual conflict exists between Islam and the rest of the world. There can thus never be a real and genuine peace between Islam and the Dar al-Harb, the rest of the world. At best, there can be a temp- the House of War. The House of Islam and the House of War can never be at peace. At best, there can be temporary truce to allow Muslims to recuperate and regroup. In the words of Batyi, which is an Islamic scholar, the jihad is a state of permanent war which excludes the possibility of true peace. All that is allowed are, quote, provisional truces in accordance with the requirements of the political situation. Now, I did in researching jihad, look, I've done, just tried to dive into things outside of this book along theme, along the themes of things that are in the book to see what's being said outside of that. Because a lot of this stuff is just, uh, to some degree, new stuff to me. And jihad in, in current, you know, and I encourage you to go look this up yourself, but it seems what I've been able to find is that jihad is a holy war, but in current interpretations of Islam, it can also be the holy war that's going on inside of yourself. Okay. Between the city of God and the city of men. Well, but that's a Christian concept. I know. But the same, the same general idea, I think. Okay. But it does seem, so it would be understandable for a modern Muslim, peace-loving Muslim to interpret that and have a school of interpretation that brings it into an internal struggle and focuses on that part because they don't want to focus on the war part, right? Right. But the war part is there, and there seems to be evidence in some sources that Muhammad supported that. History looks like they did because they took over all these places quickly. Right? So that's what's being uh, said there. So it can't allow for a true peace, just a, um, a, a truce or a provisional peace for the chance to regroup or to base on the political situation. Muslim religious law could not countenance the formal conclusion of any sort of permanent peace with the infidel. Uh, he says, in such circumstances, it's evident that when the Islamic forces were in a position of strength, almost all contact between them and the outside world was warlike. And this was not war as is waged between two kingdoms, empires, or dynasties. This was total war. War that did not distinguish between combatants and non-combatants, combatants, and war that did not end. In this spirit, Islamic generals launched attack after attack against the southern shores of Europe during the 7th and 8th centuries, and these quote, official actions were supplemented by hundreds, even thousands of lesser raids carried out by minor Muslim commanders and even by private individuals, for it was considered legitimate that the Muslim faith should live off of the infidel world. Whatever spoils could be taken were divinely sanctioned. And that's his argument, that there was a divine sanction for taking spoils. And there is, I've read in other sources at other times how the regularity of the attacks like mm. you could almost anticipate when the attack was coming, okay? Um, the Arabs also have a history in their early roots of they were tribes against tribes. I don't know if you remember that, but when we talked yeah. about the birth of Islam, that's what was going on. So conquering and warring and plundering were what they knew. And then what he's saying is that Islam gave them a religious edict to do it and a reward, <clears throat> a reward for doing it, okay? So... Would you say that the that the <clears throat> Muslims and the Vikings had pillaging in common, or was one one more expansive than the other? If the Muslims were not cool with buying slaves, then the Vikings would not have had an industry. Right. The Vikings' idea, you know, but what did we just say? We're not calling one evils. A bad choice is a bad choice. We're not calling one worse than the other. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, there was a market for what the Vikings were doing, but then yet the Vikings had to be okay with doing it, right? Mm -hmm. 
you know. Now, the extents of, of slave trading and pillaging and plundering was much greater in the Islamic Empire because it was much bigger and covered more space. Right. And it actually caused a dark age, according to Mr. Scott. There was a dark age, and archaeological evidence shows that. But what his argument is, it didn't happen until Islamic invasions in time. And so, it's an unpopular theory. Well, it yes. And, I mean, it would be, it's not certainly not politically correct, right? I mean, we don't want to be calling somebody out or your ancestors out. Okay, Frank, it was your ancestors that caused this. Right. You know, who wants to do that? You know, so that's, but what he's saying is this is the archaeological evidence. And I don't know, maybe he's got a, uh, an issue and he's wanting to find a problem with Islam or something like that. But I, he's saying there's archaeological evidence yeah. and, and I've looked into it and can't find one thing one way or the other. I, I can't, it's crazy. I can't find somebody saying, no, this is not true. And I can't find somebody saying, yes, it is true. And I think it has to do with archaeology being such a young science that there's mm-hmm. all the, that somehow all the, there's all these little pieces of information out there, but because it's so young, it hasn't all been collated into a story yet. So him telling this story is one of the early people to do this. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And, and he talks about a lot in the book about other historians that have done it and the, how they've come to different conclusions and why he, don't, he does not believe their conclusions are consistent with the evidence. So I encourage you to read the book, you know, listeners, if you're interested, because, you know, and take it for what it's worth. I'm not saying it's all accurate and I'm not saying it's inaccurate. Remind um, us the name of the book. Uh, Mohammed and Charlemagne revisited, and we'll put a link to it um, on our in the show notes on our site or whatever. But it is different than any other book I've recommended in the sense that it's written backwards, so <laughs> you can. No, I'm saying it's different because it's not like I know this to be good. It's a new idea to me, so it makes sense in a lot of ways. I've studied Islam before, and I know that there are roots of war in Islam. Now, whether it is a religion of peace today, I can't speak to that. But I know that there are roots of war in Islam. Okay. And so it's just, this is interesting to me and answers some questions. Okay. Anyway. So I want to spend a little bit, just a little bit more time on this idea of, uh, he says, even if the conquest, even after the conquest of a territory and the submission of its inhabitants. Wait, I'm going to go back and say this. He says, the coming of Islam therefore signaled a wave of banditry and piracy in the Mediterranean, such as has not been seen since before the 2nd century B.C., when such activities were surveyed, severely curtailed by Roman naval power. Indeed, it seems that this new Islamic piracy surpassed in scope and destructiveness anything that had gone before. Okay, and we talked, we hinted at that when we are looking at the maps. If you can see, if the people that control all those coastlines have no problem with piracy, which that is proven throughout history. That's not a new thing. The new thing is that it would cause the destruction of civilization, the interpretation. But, yeah. but the fact that there were Islamic pirates who were deeply involved in slave trading for centuries is not a new thing. Okay. Um, But here he goes on to say, even after the conquest of a territory and the submission of its inhabitants, the dictates of Islamic law meant that the non-Muslim inhabitants could never again enjoy lasting peace of security. And I read that and I say, why? Why? Why could they not? And so then he says, in theory, the religions of the book, Christianity and Judaism, enjoyed a special protected status under the new regime. In practice, however, the position of the Christian and Jewish population was anything but protected. And here's how he explains that. This was because under the provisions of Islamic law, Sharia law, the rights of Jews and Christians were subordinate to those of Muslims. They had rights, but they were subordinate to those of Muslims. The legal testimony of a Muslim always trumped that of a Christian or Jew, no matter how many Christians or Jews testified. So if you know that's the case, okay, in practical terms, this meant that a Jew or Christian might be insulted, robbed, or even murdered in the street without any hope of legal redress. 
If such a complaint were taken to the authorities, the Muslim culprit would claim that the infidel had insulted the Prophet or the Quran. The two other male Muslim witnesses would would need were needed to substantiate this claim, but these were invariably forthcoming, and the suit ended in the execution of the Jewish or Christian complainant. No. They don't so, say anything. So they felt like that the the cards were stacked against them. As might sure. be as might be imagined, such oppressive conditions meant that Christians and Jews lived in permanent fear of the predatory attention of Muslim neighbors, with the result that, over the centuries, the pressure to convert to Islam or to immigrate from the Muslim-controlled territory became almost irresistible. I like the way he put that. They lived in permanent fear of the predatory attention of Muslim neighbors. Because what he goes on to say... A further exacerbating factor was that under Islamic law, Muslims have a right to subsist off the labors and property of the infidel. Muslims have a right to subsist. So they're going to be in charge and whatever you have is theirs. This is enshrined in the concept of jizyah, the tax which all infidels living in the uh, nation of Islam must pay to their Muslim masters. But it was not just the caliph and his emirs who were entitled to live off the infidels. All Muslims, irrespective of position, had this right, and Islamic law thus sanctified the plundering by individual Muslims of the local Christian and Jewish populations. So the long-term consequences of such an outlook are not too difficult to imagine. A general climate of banditry and lawlessness was fostered, and we see, for example, in a very immediate way why immigrant Arab goat herders in the Middle East and the North Africa felt free to allow their flocks to graze on the cultivated lands of their Christian and Jewish neighbors, thus destroying the agricultural viability of these territories and reducing them within a very short time to arid semi-desert. So one thing he does in the book is he's already spent a large portion of a chapter previous to this Mm -hmm. explaining how the land in the Middle East and North Africa changed and saying that he believes that's attributed to the Arab goat herders. And why would they be doing this? He talks about that later on. So it's the same thing with the pottery finds and the lack of things and the abundance of things. He spends all the first chapter, the vast majority of the book laying out those finds and then comes up with explanations for why it would be that case. So if I have, if I'm a Muslim, I have the right to live off of your stuff and you have uh, fields that you're raising crops in, mm-hmm. but I let my goats graze on them because that's what the herder they have goats. They're mm-hmm. Arab herders. Over a not real long period of time, the field would be desolate. Goats can ruin a yard really fast. Yeah. Okay. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. So then the land supports that. That's what happened. That there was this rich fertile fertile soil, and then there's this desolate soil. That nothing's growing in and there's nobody living there anymore. And the goats. Isn't that interesting? The goats. Um, one of the most immediate consequences was a dramatic decline in the population. Although precise figures are unavailable, we know that the medieval populations of Anatolia, which is Turkey, Syria, Egypt, and North Africa were much smaller than those under the last Byzantine administration. So when the administration changed and they became under Islam, Islam, Islamic rule, the population declined. Estimates put the decline at anything from threefold to tenfold. And the result was that by the later Middle Ages, large parts of the Middle East and North Africa comprised sparsely populated wasteland, housing economically oppressed and largely impoverished populations. In the 14th century, for example, the Islamic scholar Ibn Khaldun writing in the squalor of what is now Tunisia, marveled at the wealth of a visiting delegation of Italian merchants. And the same attitude continues to produce the same results well into the 19th and even 20th centuries. And then he spends some time giving examples of people who visited Arab lands later in time, much later than we're in, and observations of of things like that. But one thing I thought was interesting, and we can end, end this, this was actually an observation by Mark Twain, uh, when he was, no, it wasn't Mark Twain. It was a guy named Lewis. I was, in, I was getting excited about Mark, Mark Twain. Mark Twain did make observations, but this is not the guy I'm quoting right now. He made observations too. I could pull out one of his quotes. But um, this is a guy later. And 
there was a lack of wheeled vehicles. And, and he says, wheeled vehicles or notes were virtually unknown up until modern times throughout the Muslim lands. Like, why would you not have wheeled vehicles? This was all the more strange given the fact that the wheel was invented in the Middle East, in Babylonia, and had been commonly used in earlier ages. So the conclusion he comes to, in line with that of a previous author and many others, is that, quote, a cart is large and for a peasant relatively costly. It is difficult to conceal and easy for requisition, easy to take. Mm-hmm. At a time and place where neither law nor custom restricted the powers of even local authorities, visible and mobile assets were a poor investment. Why would you invest in something when you know it's okay for somebody else to come take it and it's easy to take away? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And then he goes on to say, the same fear of predatory authority or neighbors may be seen in the structure of traditional houses. And, and you think, now think when you've seen, like even in, like maybe, like when you imagine a desert town, you imagine a town in the Middle East and the structure of the houses, and it says they have high windowless walls that almost, and almost hidden entrances in narrow alleys. And so his argument is that was so that your neighbors couldn't see what you had and want to come take it. And they couldn't, isn't that interesting? This doesn't sound like fun. No. It sounds like living in a lot of fear. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. So there you go. Um, well, that's, so that's not, that's not a cheer upper. No. And when we come back, there's a little bit more, there's more from more support for his theory. And one more point that he makes that I'll be sharing in the next episode. And, you know, I don't, I honestly do not share this with joy and excitement, except excitement's not a good word. It does answer some questions. About how we got to the Middle Ages. How we got to Dark Ages, why we had to have castles. If you got all the Vikings invaded from the north and the Muslims invaded from every other direction and everybody's available to be captured as a slave, Mm -hmm. then you go move from town and build a fortress. It also explains the feudal system, how that got started. How you have a king... And because we'll talk about this when we explain the details of the feudal system. But one of the things is the lords, the king gave them lands and allowed them to manage his land and get food from the land for the reciprocal action of them fighting for him when he needed them to. So by banding together and protecting their land, people were creating armies against these invasions. So I think it was in the Silk Roads a while back. We. I, I had the quote, like, don't get the idea that these were not dark times. They were dark times. And we just had like a paragraph that was describing it. Mm-hmm. Well, this makes more sense of, you know, not whether it's Islam or purple people or people who have, uh, you know, three years or purple people. I'm something just, about purple toes. Yes. Whether it's what. It's not about a particular thing. It's that this is an explanation of a group that arose that had the values and commitments that supported a warlike plundering society and were fine with capturing people and were in the areas that then explains why civilization disappeared from those areas. Now, there was still thriving Muslim a, a thriving Muslim city here and a thriving Muslim city there. But that was where the guy, the people that were benefiting from all this plunder were living. Yeah. Interesting. It's eye-opening. It's an eye-opening episode. Yeah. So it's questions. It's controversial. It is. Eye-opening episode. Con, uh, questions, comments, Kofi page, website, throw us a cold brew. Controversial. You know, I'd love one. to hear what y'all are thinking. Well, I'm thinking we're wrapping up 72. Wow. Yeah. Plugging along. Wrapping up 72. And we're going to see y'all next time on 70. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed this controversial episode right here. Enjoy is kind of a hard word. Yeah. Educating you. Educating you on. Causing you to think. think. Get out there and think for yourself. Do some investigation. Goats.
will tear up a field. In a minute. They tear it up, man. You remember our neighbor in Birmingham that used to have the goats? Yeah, he had he goats. He used them to cut his grass. Yeah, he had goats in his yard. He'd just move them around, put them on stakes, just move them around. He's a strange fella. I'd just chew it right down He's to the ground. He's a strange fella. All right, we'll see you next time. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe or follow wherever you stream your podcast. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link in our bio at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com. Thanks for listening.